0: chapter five of Taras bulba by Gogol, translated by isabel hapgood this librivox recording is in the public domain all southwest poland speedily became prey to fear everywhere the rumor flew there's a the there's a have appeared all who could flee did so all rose up and scattered after the manner of that lawless reckless age when men built neither fortresses nor castles but each erected his temporary dwelling of straw at haphazard. Each man thought, Tis useless to waste money and labour on a cottage. T'will be swept away in any case in a Tatar raid.' Everyone took fright. One exchanged his plough and oxen for a horse and gun. Another hid, driving off his cattle and carrying away all he could. Occasionally, on the road, some were encountered who greeted their visitors with arms in hand, but more numerous were those who fled before their arrival everyone knew that it was difficult to deal with the wild and warlike horde known by the name of the Zaporozhian army which beneath its reckless and disorderly exterior concealed an organization well calculated for times of battle the horsemen rode on without overburdening or heating their horses the foot soldiers marched soberly behind the wagons and the whole camp moved only by night resting during the day and selecting for this purpose the wilderness uninhabited places and the forests of which there was then an abundance. Spies and scouts were sent ahead to ferret out the where, the what and the how, and often they made their appearance suddenly in the places where they were least expected, and then everyone bade farewell to life. The villages were burned, the horses and cattle which were not driven off behind the army were killed on the spot. They seemed to be revelling rather than carrying out a raid. Our hair would rise an end nowadays, at the horrible exhibitions of savagery of that fierce half-civilised age which the Zaporozhsi everywhere displayed. Children slain, women's breasts cut off, the skin flayed from the feet up to the knees of victims, who were then set at liberty. In a word, the Cossacks paid old debts in coin of full weight. The prelate of one monastery, on hearing of their approach, dispatched two monks to say that they were not behaving as they should that an agreement existed between the Zaporozhsi and the government, that they were breaking faith with the king and all international right. Tell your bishop, from me and from all the Zaporozhsi, said the Koshavoy, that he has nothing to fear. The Cossacks, so far, are only lighting and smoking their pipes. The magnificent abbey was soon wrapped in the devouring flames, and its colossal Gothic windows gazed grimly through the waves of fire as they parted. Fleeing throngs of monks, women and Jews suddenly flooded those towns where there was any hope in the garrison and the town defences. The belated succour, dispatched from time to time by the government, consisting of a few small regiments, either could not find them, or, seized with fright, turned tail at the very first encounter, and fled on their swift horses. So it came to pass that many of the royal commanders, who had conquered in former battles, Resolved to unite their forces and present a front to the Zaporozhci. And here, more than all, did our young Cossacks, who avoided robbery, cupidity and a weak enemy, and were burning with the desire to distinguish themselves in the presence of the chiefs, endeavour to measure themselves in single combat with a warlike and boastful liak, prancing on his spirited horse with the sleeves of his jacket thrown back and streaming in the wind. This science was inspiriting they had already won for themselves many horse trappings valuable swords and guns in a single month the newly fledged birds had attained their full growth were completely transformed and had become men their features in which hitherto a trace of youthful softness had been discernible had now grown grim and it was pleasant to old taras to see both his sons among the leaders it seemed as though ostap were designed by nature for the pursuit of war and the difficult art of conducting military operations never once losing his head or becoming confused under any circumstances with a cool audacity which was almost supernatural in a youth of two-and-twenty he could in an instant gauge the danger and grasp the whole scope of the matter could instantly devise a means of escaping it but of escaping it only that he might the more surely conquer it his movements now began to be distinguished by the assurance which springs from experience and in them could be detected the temperament of the future great leader. His person exhaled strength, and his knightly qualities had already assumed the broad power of the lion. "'Oh, what a fine colonel that fellow will make one of these days,' said old Taras. "'By God, he'll make a magnificent colonel, far surpassing even his father!' Andrew surrendered himself wholly to the enchanting music of bullets and swords. He knew not what it was to consider or to calculate, or to measure in advance his own strength and the enemy's. He found in battle a mad delight and intoxication. He perceived something festal in the moments when a man's brain burns, when everything waves and flutters before his eyes, heads fly off, horses fall to the earth with the sound of thunder, while he rides on like a drunken man, amid the whistling of bullets and the flashing of swords, dealing blows to all and heeding not those dealt to him. More than once the father marvelled also at Andri when he beheld him, incited only by a passionate impulse, hurl himself at something which a sensible man in cold blood would never have attempted, and by the sheer force of his mad onslaught accomplish such wonders as could not but amaze men old in battle. Old Taras admired and said, and he too will be a good warrior if the enemy does not capture him. He's not Ostap, but he's a fine, a grand warrior nevertheless. The army decided to march straight to the city of Dubno, where, so rumour asserted, there were many treasures and wealthy inhabitants. The journey was accomplished in a day and a half, and the Zaporozhsi made their appearance before the city. The inhabitants resolved to defend themselves to the utmost extent of their power, to the last extremity, and preferred to die in their squares and streets before their own thresholds, rather than admit the enemy to their houses. A high earthen rampart surrounded the city, in places where the rampart was somewhat lower there rose up a stone wall or a house or even an oaken stockade which served as a battery the garrison was strong and felt the importance of their business the zaporozhi attacked the rampart fiercely but were met by a shower of grapeshot the citizens and residents of the town evidently did not wish to remain idle either and stood in groups upon the rampart in their eyes could be read desperate resistance the women also were determined to take part and rained down upon the heads of the Zaporozhsi stones, casks, pots, and finally boiling water and sacks of sand, which blinded them. The Zaporozhsi were not fond of dealing with fortified places. Sieges were not in their line. The Koschevoi ordered a retreat and said, "Tis useless brother nobles, we will retire, but may I be a heathen Tatar and not a Christian, if we don't clean them out of that town. Let them all perish of hunger, the dogs. The army retreated invested the town on all sides, and for lack of something to do, busied themselves with devastating the surrounding country, burning the neighbouring villages, the ricks of unthreshed grain, and turning their droves of horses loose in the fields as yet untouched by the reaping-hook, where, as though intentionally prepared for them, waved the plump ears, the fruit of an unusual harvest, liberally rewarding all tillers of the soil that season. With horror, the inhabitants, looking on from the city, beheld their means of subsistence destroyed. And meanwhile the Zaproshti, having formed a double cordon of their wagons around the city, disposed themselves as in the siege in their barracks, smoked their pipes, bartered their booty for weapons, played at leapfrog, at odd and even, and gazed at the city with deadly cold-bloodedness. At night they lighted their campfires. The cooks boiled the porridge for each karen in huge copper kettles, and unsleeping sentinels stood all night long beside the blazing fires. But the Zaporozhsi soon began to tire of inactivity and prolonged sobriety, unaccompanied by any fighting. The Koshavoy even ordered the allowance of liquor to be doubled, which is sometimes done in the army when difficult enterprises or operations are underway. The young men in general, and Taras Bulba's sons in particular, did not like this life. Andriy was visibly bored. "'You silly head!' said Taras to him. "'Be patient, Cossack. You'll be Ataman some day.' and he is not a good warrior who loses his spirit in an important affair but he is good who does not weary even of inaction who endures everything and no matter what you do to him turns it to account but hot youth cannot agree with age the two have different natures and they look at the same thing with different eyes but in the meantime taras's regiment led by tovkatch arrived with him were also two Yasols, the scribe and other regimental officers. The Cossacks numbered over four thousand in all. There were among them many volunteers, who had risen of their own free will, without any summons as soon as they heard what the matter was. The Yasuls brought to Taras's sons the blessing of their aged mother, and to each a holy image of cypress wood from the mezhigorsk Monastery in Kiev. The two brothers hung the holy icons round their necks, and involuntarily grew pensive, as they recalled their old mother. What did this blessing prophesy? What did it say to them? Was it a blessing for their victory over the enemy, and then a joyful return to their home with booty and glory, to be everlastingly commemorated in the songs of the Bandura players, or was it? But the future is not to be known, and stands before a man like autumnal fogs rising from the swamps. Birds fly to and fro in it, with flapping wings, never recognizing one another. The dove not seeing the vulture, nor the vulture the dove, and no one knows how near he may be flying to his destruction. Ostap had long before attended to his duties, and gone to the barrack. Andrey, without knowing why, felt a sort of oppression in his heart. The Cossacks had finished their evening meal. The evening had fully quieted down. The wonderful July night ruled the air, but he did not go to the barracks, he did not lie down to sleep, and involuntarily he surveyed the whole scene before him in the sky with a thin sharp gleam twinkled innumerable stars the plain was covered far and wide by wagons scattered over its expanse their swinging tar buckets smeared with tar loaded with every description of goods and provisions captured from the foe by the side of the carts under the carts and far beyond the carts zaporojsi were everywhere visible stretched out upon the grass all asleep in picturesque attitudes one had thrust a sack under his head another his cap still another was simply making use of his comrade's side swords guns arquebuses short-stemmed pipes with copper mountings iron awls and a flint and steel were inseparable from every cossack the heavy oxen with legs doubled under them lay in huge whitish masses and at a distance looked like grey stones scattered on the slopes of the plain On all sides the heavy snores of sleeping warriors had already begun to rise from the grass and were answered from the plain by the ringing neighs of their steeds, chafing at their hobbled feet. Meanwhile, a certain grim magnificence was mingled with the beauty of the July night. It was the distant glare of conflagrations from the country round about. In one place the flames spread tranquilly and grandly over the sky. In another, having encountered something else on fire, They suddenly burst into a whirlwind and flew hissing upwards to the very stars and torn fragments faded away in the most distant quarter of the heavens. There a black monastery like a grim Carthusian monk stood threatening and displaying its dark magnificence at every flash. Yonder burned the monastery garden. It seemed as though the trees could be heard hissing as they wrapped themselves in smoke and when the fire leaped aside It suddenly lighted up with a phosphorescent lilac rose-hued gleam, the ripe plums, or turned the yellowing pears here and there to ruddy gold. And there among them all, on the wall of a building, or against the trunk of a tree, a black blot hung the body of a poor Jew or monk who had perished in the flames of the building. Far away, high above the conflagration, hovered birds, which looked like a cluster of tiny black crosses upon a fiery background. The town thus laid bare seemed asleep. Its spires and roofs, and the stockade and walls, flashed quietly in the glare of the distant conflagrations. Andrey made the rounds of the Cossack ranks. The fires beside which the sentinels sat were on the point of dying out, and even the sentinels were asleep, having devoured oatmeal and dumplings with genuine Cossack appetites. He was amazed at such carelessness, and said to himself, "'Tis well that there is no strong enemy near at hand.' And no one to fear. At last, he went to one of the transport wagons, climbed into it, and laid down upon his back, thrusting his clasped hands under his head. But he could not sleep and gazed long at the sky. It was all open before him. The air was pure and transparent. The dense mass of stars which constitutes the Milky Way and traverses the sky in a belt was flooded with light. From time to time, Andriy forgot himself to a degree, and a light mist of dreaming seemed to veil the heavens from him for a moment, and then it cleared away, and they became visible again. During one of these intervals, it seemed to him that some strange human figure was flitting before him. Thinking it was merely a dream apparition which would immediately fade away, he opened his eyes fully and beheld a withered, emaciated face bending over him and gazing straight into his eyes. The long coal-black hair fell, unquaffed, dishevelled, from beneath a dark veil, which was thrown over the head, and the strange glitter of the eyes and the death-like brown tone of the face, which threw the sharply cut features into relief, inclined him to believe that it was an apparition. His hand involuntarily grasped his arquebus, and he exclaimed almost convulsively, "'Who are you? If you are an evil spirit, begone from my sight! "'If you are a living being, you have chosen an unseemly time for your jest. "'I will kill you with a single shot!' In answer to this, the apparition laid its finger upon its lips and seemed to entreat silence. He dropped his hand and began to scrutinise it more attentively. He recognised it as a woman from the long hair, the brown neck, the half-concealed bosom, but she was not a native of those regions. Her whole face was swarthy, wasted by disease. Her broad cheekbones stood out prominently above her hollow cheeks. Her narrow eyes rose upwards in an arch, the more he gazed at her features, the more he discerned in them that which was familiar. At last, unable to restrain himself longer, he said, Tell me, who are you? It seems to me that I know you, or have seen you somewhere. Two years ago, in Kiev. Two years ago, in Kiev, repeated Andrey, endeavouring to collect in his mind all that still lingered in his memory of his former student life. He looked intently at her once more. And suddenly exclaimed at the top of his voice, ''You are the Tatar, the servant of the young noblewoman, the voivod's daughter!'' Sh!" cried the Tatar, clasping her hands with a gesture of supplication, trembling all over, and turning her head round in order to see whether anyone had been waked up by Andri's loud exclamation. ''Tell me, tell me, why are you here?'' said Andri, almost panting in a whisper, interrupted every moment by inward emotion. ''Where is the young lady? Is she alive?'' She is now in the city in the city he exclaimed almost in a shriek and felt that all the blood suddenly flew to his heart why is she in the city because the old nobleman himself is in the city he has been voivode of dubno for the last year and a half is she married how strange you look tell me about her she has had nothing to eat for two days what not one of the inhabitants has had a morsel of bread for a long while past All have been eating earth only. Andrew was astonished. The young lady saw you from the city ramparts among the Zaporozhsi. She said to me, Go say to the knight, If he remembers me, let him come to me. And do not forget to make him give you a bit of bread for my aged mother, for I do not wish to see my mother die before my very eyes. Better that I should die first and she afterwards. Beseech him, clasp his knees, his feet. He also has an aged mother, let him give you bread for her sake. Many feelings awoke and flamed up in the young Cossack's breast. But how came you hither? By what road did you arrive? By an underground passage. Is there an underground passage? Yes. Where? You will not betray it, knight. I swear by the Holy Cross that I will not. You must descend into the gully and cross the watercourse yonder among the reeds and it leads into the city straight into the town monastery let us go let us go at once a bit of bread in the name of christ and his holy mother good so be it stand here beside the wagon or better still lie down in it no one will see you all are asleep i will return immediately and he set off for the transports which contained the provisions belonging to their barrack his heart beat violently all the past all that had been extinguished by the cossack bivouacs by the stern battle of life flamed up at once to the surface and in its turn drowned the present again as from the dark depths of the sea the proud woman rose up before him again in his memory shone forth her beautiful arms her eyes her laughing mouth her thick dark chestnut hair falling in curls upon her shoulders the elastic well-knit members of her maiden figure no they had not been extinguished in his breast they had not vanished they had simply withdrawn to one side in order for a time to make way for other strong emotions but often very often the young cossack's deep slumbers had been troubled by them and often waking he had lain sleepless on his bed without being able to explain the cause he walked on but his heart beat more violently still at the mere thought of seeing her again and his young knees shook when he reached the transport he had utterly forgotten the reason for his coming he raised his hand to his brow and rubbed it long trying to recollect what he meant to do at last he trembled and was filled with terror the thought suddenly occurred to him that she was dying of hunger he flung himself upon the wagon and seized several large loaves of black bread but then he thought Is not this food which is suited to a robust and easily satisfied zaporozhets, too coarse and unfit for her delicate frame? Then he remembered that the koshevoi, on the previous evening, had reproved the cooks for having cooked up all the buckwheat flour into porridge at once, when there was plenty for at least three times. In the full assurance that he would find plenty of porridge in the kettles, he drew out his father's travelling kettle and went with it to the cook of their barrack, who was sleeping alongside two huge kettles, holding about ten bucketfuls apiece, under which the ashes still glowed. Glancing into them, he was amazed to find both empty. Supernatural powers must have been required to eat it all, the more so, as their barrack numbered fewer men than the others. He looked into the kettles of the other Karens. Nothing anywhere. Involuntarily there occurred to his mind, the Zaporoshsi are like children. If there is little, they eat it. If there is much, they leave nothing. What was he to do? Still, somewhere in the wagon belonging to his father's regiment, there was, he thought, a sack of white bread, which they had found when they pillaged the bakery of a monastery. He went straight to his father's load, but it was not there. Ostap had taken it and put it under his head, and there he lay stretched out on the ground, snoring so that the whole plain reverberated. Andrey seized the sack abruptly with one hand and gave it a jerk, so that Ostap's head fell on the ground, and the latter sprang up half-awake, and sitting there with closed eyes, shouted at the top of his lungs, Stop him! Stop the damned Liag! Catch the horse! Silence! I'll kill you! shouted Andri in terror, brandishing the sack over him. But Ostap did not continue his speech, quieted down, and emitted such a snore that the grass on which he lay undulated with his breath. Andrey glanced timidly about him on all sides, to see if Ostap's dream ravings had waked any of the Cossacks only one scalp-locked head rose up in the adjoining barrack glanced about then dropped back on the ground after waiting a couple of minutes he set out with his burden the tatar woman still lay there scarcely breathing rise let us go fear not all are sleeping can you take one of these loaves if i cannot carry all so saying he flung the sacks on his back pulled out another sack of millet as he passed a wagon took in his hands the loaves he had wanted to give the Tatar woman to carry, and, bending somewhat under his load, went boldly through the ranks of slumbering Zabarajsi. Andriy said old Bulba as he passed. His heart died within him. He halted, all of a tremble, and said softly, "'What is it?' "'There's a woman with you! When I get up, I'll give you a sound thrashing! Women will lead you to no good!' So saying, he leaned his head upon his hand, "'and gazed intently at the muffled form of the Tatar. "'Andre stood there more dead than alive, "'not daring to look his father in the face, "'and when he did raise his eyes and glance at him, "'old Bulba was fast asleep, "'with his head resting in the palm of his hand. "'He made the sign of the cross on his breast. "'Fear fled from his heart even more rapidly than it had attacked it. "'When he turned to look at the Tatar woman, "'she stood before him like a dark granite statue, "'all muffled in her veil, And the glow of the crimson glare in the distance lighted up only her eyes dull as the eyes of a corpse he plucked her by the sleeve and both went on together glancing incessantly behind them and at last they descended the slope into a small ravine almost a hole at the bottom of which a stream flowed lazily overgrown with sedge and strewn with mossy hummocks descending into this ravine they were completely concealed from view "'of all the plain occupied by the Zaporozhian camp. "'At least Andriy, as he glanced back, "'saw that the abrupt declivity rose behind him like a steep wall, "'taller than a man's stature. "'On its crest waved a few stalks of steppe grass "'and above them, in the sky, hung the moon, "'like a reaping-hook of pure ruddy gold set aslant. "'The breeze, blowing off the steppe, "'warned them that the dawn was not far off, "'but nowhere was the distant crow of a cock audible.' There had been not a single cock for a long time past, either in the city or in the devastated neighbourhood. They crossed the stream on a narrow plank, beyond which rose the opposite bank, that appeared higher than the one behind them, and formed a complete precipice. It seemed as though this were a strong and solid point of the citadel, at all events. The earthen rampart was lower there, and no garrison appeared behind it. But further on rose the thick monastery wall, The precipitous bank was all overgrown with step grass, and in the narrow ravine between it and the stream grew tall reeds, almost to the height of a man. At the summit of the ravine were visible the remains of a wattled fence, revealing that a garden had once existed there. In front of it the broad leaves of the burdock, from among which rose pigweed, and blackthorn, and sunflowers, rearing their heads high above all the rest. Here the Tatar flung off her high-heeled slippers. "'and went barefoot, gathering up her gown carefully, "'for the spot was marshy and soaked with water. "'Forcing their way through the reeds, "'they halted before a pile of faggots and brushwood. "'Pushing aside the brushwood, "'they found a sort of earthen arch, "'an opening not much larger than the mouth of an oven. "'The Tatar woman bent her head and went first. Andrew followed, bending as low as he could, "'in order to pass with his sacks, "'and both soon found themselves in total darkness.' End of chapter five.